1: Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 8th, 2016. This is episode 1866 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Thursday. Thursday is time for your calls to the Think Line 86665. Think 86665. T-H-I-N-K. In fact, you're also going to hear about a new way. I'll wait till later to tell you about it. A new way you'll be able to leave messages for the Think Line right off the website without using a phone at all. Anyway. What are we going to talk about today? What kind of calls have we got? Well, I got one that's not really a call. I'm going to give you guys a quick homestead update. I've got some stuff going on right now I think you guys might want to hear about with greenhouse and an aquaponic system, modifications that are going to be coming to my aviary. It's pretty cool. I'll try to put out a little bit of video on it over this Friday and Saturday maybe for you to see where things are going. It's in construction right now. I'm going to try to wrap the show up a little bit early today so I can get out there with the guys that are actually building my greenhouse, putting my aquaponic system together for me because I'm sitting here and the He's doing all the work. At least I'll make up some brats and, uh, and uh, maybe give him a cold beer. I'm also going to talk to you about inverters. Well, actually, a listener is going to give you some advice on inverters following up on Stephen Harris's thing, and I'm going to give my little real quick, like, yeah, maybe, but think about it this way, uh, advice as well. I have a question about what's up with the housing market and new construction. This is a synchronistic uh, synchronistic question because I was just thinking I'd like to talk about this issue uh, with the fact that I just heard about how many construction jobs went unfilled this quarter. Yes, unfilled. Uh, While we don't have the greatest employment in history uh, by any means or job market in history by any means, right now there are opportunities in construction. I'll talk to you about that today. Um, thoughts on which rounds are the most practical rounds? What 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 guns? What ammo do we really need? How many? How much call is there for some of the stuff people are really into versus like the practical stuff that always works? A new way to send us voice messages, as I said, will be coming. Updates on the bucket fodder system. I now call it the the bucket sprouting system. I get questions on this all the time from an old article that was published by Brink of Freedom, and I've made some changes. I'll talk about that and how you could still do fodder and, and some things you can do if you're having issues with mold and things like that uh, for feeding your animals. And I will talk to you about a new course Coming out from Toby Hemingway called Creating Gaia's Garden, which is about doing food production in your backyard. It's an amazing opportunity. It blends with today's TSP item of the day as well. So, all of that and more in just a bit. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this, just call the Think Line 866 65. Think 866 65 T H I N K. Make your point or leave your, you know, give your point or your question in one or two sentences immediately. And then give me your details. It'll go better. You'll be more likely to get on the air. I'm just saying. And remember, no calling from the back of a motorcycle or while running a chainsaw or things like that. Cell phone users, make sure there's more than two bars on your phone, and you will probably get a good call in so that we'll be able to hear you and get you on the air. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's T-S-P-B-I-Z to learn more. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep five to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out JMBullion.com to learn more. Next, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1866, because the episode is 1866. And Alex Shrugged has three for us today from that year at tspwiki.com. We have Black Friday and our own best interest. We also have the Transatlantic Telegraph is in business. And the struggle for civil rights begins. In other news, the U.S. Congress approves a five-cent coin called Shield Nickel, The first daylight bank robbery is committed by Jesse James and company. And Alfred Noble invents dynamite. He uses diametaceous earth to stabilize nitroglycerin. And bam, he's going to be rich. DuPont is blowing it. Anyway, um, I'm going to read The Struggle for Civil Rights Begins because this is something that we really don't know much about, I think, in America today. What happened immediately after the Civil War and how complex the situation was. The first Civil Rights Act is passed into law over the veto of President Andrew Johnson. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution has already ended slavery, but black codes or laws passed by individual states have imposed taxes on ex-slaves who cannot find work. Let's work out the logic of this. An ex-slave is a, is a fr- or freedman cannot find work, so he's taxed, but he can't pay tax because he's out of work. So the freedman is arrested on tax evasion and forced to work for the state to pay off the debt, after which he is a former felon who cannot find work, wash, rinse, repeat. To resolve such injustices the US Congress passes the Civil Rights Act which grants citizenship to any number of people including freedmen and grants them equal rights to enter into binding contracts to sue the courts and to prevent discrimination on the on the job based on race. There is some doubt as to whether Congress has authority to pass such sweeping legislation nevertheless enough congressmen object to the current injustices to override President Johnson's veto. Yeah. Then the Congress begins work on the 14th Amendment to grant themselves the authority to do what they already did. My take by Alex Schreck, the 14th Amendment, which includes Equal Protections Clause, was ratified by the states in 1868. More than any other legislation has transformed the United States from a confederation of independent states to a unified and federalized whole, like it or not. Oddly enough, California did not ratify until 1959, Oregon followed in 1973. Ohio and New Jersey finally ratified in 2003, making it unanimous amongst the states in existence in 1866. FYI, under the 14th Amendment, American Indians under tribal jurisdiction were not granted citizenship. Also, a tribal Indian did not become a U.S. citizen. Once he left his tribe, apparently he was a man without a country until 1924 with the passage of the Indian Citizenship Act. Whether one automatically became a citizen or Uh, After being born, uh, foreign parents living in the United States was answered by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1898 when a Chinese couple legally immigrated to the U.S. established residence and had a child. The court determined the child was a citizen. Whether that decision includes illegal immigrants has remained a matter of controversy. Frankly, the issue should be settled in legislation or with a constitutional amendment. But not by court fiat yeah i that 's kind of the issue I want to take up here the The rest of alex 's stuff kind of speaks for itself, how complex and how unjust the situation was after the civil war you 're free, but you owe us money because you don 't have a job, so you have to work for free until you can get out of that, and then you can yeah okay, and do what we did in Native Americans and all the way up until the 1920s you 're not a citizen of the nation that 's taken over your nation, you have no rights of citizenship, you know it Anyway, um, but you know, they call this the anchor baby thing. See, I think if you have a child in this country and you're here illegally, they should not just immediately be granted citizenship. I don't think there's anything constitutional about that. What I also think is kind of a travesty is yes, in 1898. The court held that it, since the couple were here legally when the child was born here, then they were a natural-born citizen. But that's never been taken up again to see, well, what happens if you're here illegally, just like Alex said. And I do think this is something that there probably would be a great deal of support for, uh, enough to pass it if Congress had the stones to take it up. Um that's how i feel as someone that looks at the system and say well if you say the system works then you're supposed to break the system work you know personally i feel that the the immigration issues we have today are not a problem because of people coming here it's because of what people are able to do when they come here we have illegal immigrants that are that are granted welfare that citizens wouldn't qualify for that are given exceptions to things like well you have to show id for that that normal citizens, it's an unjust and unfair treatment. The other thing that I think is, is really screwed up immigration, I think the government wants it screwed up or they would fix this stuff. If you are picked up committing a crime and you're here illegally, uh, once your restitution of that crime is, is, is seen to, your ass should be on a, a one-way ticket strapped to a missile, if necessary, back to your country of origin. And that's not about Mexico. I don't care where you're from. If you're in this country illegally and you break the law, you need to be going out really, really fast. Because it, it just doesn't... It really, if you think about it, it makes no logical sense. No matter how much of a libertarian or anarchist you are, you you would expect that the criminals would at least follow their own contract and protect the rights of people who believe that the criminals are doing good for good's sake. And they don't. And we we know that. But in, in this one is so ridiculous. You pick somebody up, they've committed a crime, let's say aggravated assault. They're a member of MS thirteen and we know this because they have an MS thirteen tattoo on their forehead. This person goes to prison, is released from prison and not deported and then this person has children who are granted citizenship and come up in a home that teaches crime. We've lost our effing minds. And, you know, I often say that the more things change, the more they stay the same. I actually think in this case, this is an example of progressively getting worse. I think when the court ruled in 1898 that, yes, the child born here to people that were legally here is a a citizen, they never thought, well... You know, if you were here illegally it would apply. I mean, they didn't feel the need to dictate that because they didn't think it was a question that was made any sense. I think we've we in some ways we've improved over the years, and in other ways we've gotten much, much worse. And we've lost our collective effing minds, my take by Jack Spierko. With that, let me tell you about um what's going on here today. So right now we're constructing a 11 by 12, or let's just say 12 by 11, depending on which direction you want to look at it at, a greenhouse. It's about 9 feet high in the back, about 7, 6 in the front, kind of a lean-to structure. It's got four windows in it and uh, two big doors. And it, it's, it's unconventional. It's the way people generally build greenhouses. It has a roof that's done with clear, tough, text, greenhouse-type uh, covering, And then coming down the front of it, it's going to be about four or five feet of that same clear Tuftex uh, plastic covering. But then the rest of the wall going forward down, you know, from about three, four feet up down, it's just going to be wood because, well, the sun doesn't get that low. And then the sides are going to be wood, and the back is wood, and then there's four windows in it on the sides and the back that are primarily for ventilation, not light. Because there's plenty of light coming through there and that gives us plenty of ventilation and we're in good shape with all that. So the reason we're doing that is inside this greenhouse is where two 330-gallon IBC tanks, which are the big plastic white tanks you see with metal caging around them are going, tops cut off, and the fish are going to live in there and there's a solids filter that's going to go in there with them. So the, the hope is to be able to keep fish Through the winter by insulating the tanks eventually without supplemental heat or with minimal supplemental heat and by building the greenhouse with siding versus all plastic that's all, you know, very much lets, provides very little insulation, we should hold heat better. That's one of the ways we're going to deal with that. I have some other ideas that I'll be looking at once the system's put in. The other thing we're doing is we're putting the grow beds, which we're doing raft, Wicking and flood and drain. So raft is what it sounds like. It's a deep tank with styrofoam on top of it, and you grow your plants in little holes in the styrofoam. Uh, flood and drain is what most people think of, of aquaponics. It's going to be full of lava rock. The water comes up, and then it drops back down. It comes up and drops back down. Wicking beds, you basically, we're going to do the lava rock in the bottom, and then the water's going to, uh, to be there and just be on an autofill that keeps it full to a certain height, and that will you know, work as a wicking bed so we can grow in all three environments. They're going inside the aviary. Those of you who have seen the aviary know the aviary is not real tall, uh, and it's not really big either. So we're putting them in there for now temporarily fitted together. We're going to get everything cycling so that we start getting nutrient cycling. And the guys that are helping me with it are going to come back. We're going to disconnect the whole back of the aviary and put a wall back there, about eight-foot wall, so the aviary is now going to be constructed of a wooden back wall. The cattle panels that make the arch will go from the bottom to the top of the wall. So you're, you're thinking about a, you know, imagine a 45-degree a angle with a, a rounded front, if you're looking at it from the side. That will give us a lot more room when we put we can then put the, uh, the grow beds all the way to the back wall because it will be straight, and it will give us a lot of vertical space. So it's a pretty major reconstruction of the aviary. It's going to be very cool, though, when it's done. And uh, we will be documenting all of this. The guy that's leading the crew out there that's doing all this work is David Siegler. And David will be teaching uh, two aquaponic sessions using this for show-and-tell and using PowerPoint during the fall workshop that many of you are coming to. And I've already spoken to David. I'm going to be getting him in touch with Josiah. We'll be having David do a presentation through perma ethos. And I think we're going to have David do a backyard aquaculture course through perma ethos. Uh, he seemed interested in when I talked to him about it yesterday, he's done more with like backyard aquaponics and aquaculture than I've ever seen. And he's the kind of guy. He's one of these kind of do everything guys. And, uh, I think those of you coming to the course are really going to enjoy it, but keep an eye out for, we'll, we'll do a work in on the, the presentations because I think Joe's booked out through November at PETV. So PETV is a, is where we do our, our presentations, uh, weekly. Joe's doing these. You might want to check that out if you haven't yet. Best in the business coming in and doing teaching and stuff like that. So. Keep an eye out for that it's probably like a course that we would release after christmas I'm thinking depending on david's schedule and all. Uh, this would be a live course like the one toby's uh, Hemingway is about to start in october uh, and I'll tell you more about that uh, later today. But I wanted you guys to know that that's going on my My goal with this system is to move the almost the the, the majority of the food that we're producing uh, for you know annual garden type stuff into that aviary protected from all my birds and rodents and stuff like that uh, in a very safe, secure environment. Also, a shaded environment. We have 60% shade cloth for it for our harsh heat and um, pretty much than just perennials everywhere else. And i mean, even thinking of my wicking beds that I put in front of the garage. They work fine, but I don't really need them after this. Like, I can only – I mean, how much lettuce can a man eat? So I'm thinking about actually – Stripping those out and turning those into their own aquatic system. I'm, I'm really digging the aquatic systems, guys. It's, it's, uh, it, it's fascinating. And we're gonna be doing more with aquatics and aquaponics, both. So aquatics, not necessarily aquaponics, just fish. We've got some plans we're gonna be doing tilapia in this system. We'll probably, uh, in some of these other systems we're building, also do prawns, uh, or possibly, uh, crayfish and some other things, catfish. Koi, um, and uh, we'll be documenting all of this stuff and getting it to you. And David will be doing, a, like I said, a, a full-on course uh, for people that want to take it to another level. And his presentation, I'm sure, will be fantastic. So I just wanted to give you guys an update on that. I know I went long. It's really not intro segment, though, stuff. We're core core material at this point, kind of homestead update thing. So next, let's go ahead and take your first call today. We have somebody with some advice on inverters and following up from Stephen Harris's advice on servicing inverters uh, last week, and I really like what he has to say, and then I have a but to add to it when you're looking at the cost of inverters with higher quality inverters.
2: Hey, Jack, I, I had a little little thing to throw on to uh, Steve Harris's comment about inverters for your your low usage or emergency backup system. Uh, Get an inverter with integrated overcurrent protection. And look for one that has a circuit breaker for your integrated overcurrent protection. That's less common on lower grade backup stuff, unless you're talking about full PV systems. Um, I'm NAPSEP certified in, in PV. So uh, I just want to throw that out there. If Find a portable that has integrated overcurrent protection with a circuit breaker, that's ideal. Uh, And for a note on solar system design, if the system requires a fuse, the engineering report on each piece of equipment will tell you that. Second, forget the fuse. And I don't mean don't put it in. I mean fuses are a pain in the ass. See it? A circuit breaker that is the equivalent of the fuse. So you don't have parts to change. You can flip the switch. And if you have a rear, from there, you can isolate individual sections of your system to troubleshoot it. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Okay, I'm going to be quick on this one because it really wasn't a question. It was more like really great advice. But here's... Here's my caveats. Number one, I love the circuit breaker. I think that's brilliant if you have an inverter that especially doesn't have an externally swappable fuse. Um, because if the the breaker throws, then the fuse doesn't blow. And then you don't have to deal with that. If the fuse is like one, like the one I have, or most of what I have anyway, there's a little like external fuse and you just open the thing and put a new fuse in. Now it still might be worth going to put some circuit breakers in, in, in there because, well, if you do that, like you said, you just flip the switch, you don't need a new fuse. So that's interesting. But, I, you know, thinking about how some inverters have fuses that are internal or things that blow internally and have to be taken apart, adding a circuit breaker then just eliminates that. Right. So that, that's really great advice. Now, the concept of buying a more expensive inverter because it's more reliable, maybe. Here's how I make determinations like that. If I can buy two of something for less than the cost of one of something and I'm only buying the more expensive one because it's more reliable, then I'm probably going to go with two because even that more reliable one can fail. So that's I'm not always you know you know me guys I I'm a big believer in quality and I I, I'm a big 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 blah 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 sorry guys a big believer in price to value ratio so I want the maximum value for the best price I don't want cheap always be frugal never be cheap that's one of my tenets that I teach right so I'm not trying to say buy the cheapest thing but I'm saying in any instance. So here's another example. One time, and I, I was the guy trying to sell the higher quality, and I, I could not argue with this this client's uh, viewpoint. So I was talking to a customer. This is back when I sold Ethernet hardware, and I had these little uh, four port switches, and they had realized that it was absolutely ridiculous to to, to feel that you know they needed a a, a hundred megabit Ethernet port for every computer that they had. They had cubicles and basically in quads. So you had four. So it was perfect. You had one jack, you you piped into the, the switch and then you had four ports and then each user got piped into a port and this would save them a lot of money because they didn't have to upgrade uh, and bring more cabling in. It was kind of like they had some infrastructure there and they could get by with only putting a couple new cables in uh, and cabling is expensive when you install it. And so I show them this little. I came up with the idea, right? I'm a consultant for free until I sell, and they love the idea. And they're like, "Well, how much are these little switches?" And they were like, two hundred and twenty bucks or something like that, which is pretty high for a four port switch, even back in the day when I was doing this. And uh, they're like, "Well, we can get a little switch like that for seventy five bucks." So I go through the whole thing about how reliable they are. We sell them to the gas and oil industry. They can be in a box and it can get up to a thousand degrees or not really a thousand degrees, but it was very high temperature specs and stuff like that. And class one, div two. So, you know, all this NEB certification for telecom. And we don't need that. Yeah. But all that means it's more reliable. And the guy says to me, well, look, I can buy for half the price everything we need and then. For ten percent more, I can buy a whole bunch of them and stick them on the shelves. And if we ever need one goes out, we just swap and replace it. I had nothing; I lost that deal. And he wasn't wrong, and it was exactly how I would have thought if I was the buyer. So that's that's kind of my addition when you're. That's how you look at things when you're going. Do I spend more money for the more expensive thing? Sometimes yes, and other times you look at redundancy created by multiples. Uh, and when you can go very, very low cost and you still have decent reliability, sometimes that is a better play. Let's take another call.
3: Hey, Jack. This is Chris from Plano. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on the housing market. I'm particularly curious about Texas, um, the details. I know there's been a lot of uh, construction uh, in the last few years, kind of make up for, for the big slump. And but at some point you would think it's it's going to get everything saturated, and I know a lot of people have moved to Texas, but still you can only build so much. You know, like Houston, I believe is having a glut well already. Um, but if if housing is not good, what would you think might be a good construction? What what construction project types might have good opportunities um, in the years ahead? Uh, I was kind of wondering if you could look into that crystal ball again and just kind of. Uh, just a general idea what type of project might be good. You know, I know retail is not going to be good, uh, like you mentioned. But anyway, you know, I just want to know your thoughts. Uh, thanks and thanks for everything you do and hope to hear this on the show. Bye.
1: Okay, so I, I want to approach this from two angles. I want to start out with the opportunity that's there. So um, I heard on the radio when I was doing something recently. I'm in the vehicle so infrequently anymore that I, I I don't really listen to radio much anymore. I usually listen to other people's podcasts when I'm in the radio in the car. But I you know turned the radio on and what's going on and caught a little news segment. and said that. Uh, the lady was like, if you're looking for a job, pick up a hammer. Over 200,000 construction jobs were unfilled this quarter. 200,000 nationwide. So there is opportunity in the construction field. So the opportunities there, and it, it it is very much because of the housing slump. So when property values fell on their ass, and there were an abundance of foreclosures back in 2008, Builders were building like mad. They were building faster than they're building now, trying to fix it, okay? And and companies went bankrupt and companies that survived, like choice homes and things like that, they severely downscaled and then the people that lost jobs went and did something. They didn't, you know, they either drew unemployment for two years until they got thrown off of it and did something, or they went and found another job right away. They couldn't sit around waiting for that job to come back. They could tell it wasn't coming back. So when housing took back off, you can't just turn it back on. It's not like a water faucet where you can just turn the pressure down and turn the pressure back up. It's, it's a major thing to have a company that can build, you know, a hundred houses a year. That's, that's not something that you just do, um, from scratch. So a lot of these guys went and did independent things and all, and they're good builders and all, but they can't build the whole house. They're, they're doing additions. They're doing uh, remodels and bathrooms and stuff like that. So the opportunity there is now available for a lot of people to get in the door, kind of entry level. You know, if you can swing a hammer and work a tape measure and show up on time, there's jobs out there. They may not pay the best. Okay, because now I want to get to the second angle I want to come at this from, and i'm going gonna, to going look like I'm in left field. you guys know me i'm never really in left field unless I'm actually playing baseball, and I don't play baseball, and they usually put me you know in right field where there's less ball to say because I'm not good anyway so um the thing I want you to think about now is a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad, okay because I got this advice in there. Rich Dad, Poor Dad was written by Robert Kiyosaki. A lot of people are butthurt over it because they read it and believe it was a true story, and it's really like not really a true story. His dad really wasn't poor, per se, and he did financially okay, and his rich dad never really existed. There was a couple different people that it was based on, and it's like an allegory, but it doesn't matter. The the, the, the principles in Rich Dad, Poor Dad are dead solid. And one of the things that he says his rich dad taught him when he was coming up in the world With taking jobs, he said, never take a job for the pay. Take a job for what it can teach you, and when you've extracted as much as you can learn from it, go do something else. Go do something else. Okay. I would look at, if you want a a future in construction right now, where can I go and learn the most? Cause it doesn't matter what you're constructing. It matters what you're able to do. So if that happens to be building, you know, production grade homes for a company like Choice Homes, fine. If it's building custom homes with a custom builder, fine. If it's building strip malls, fine. I don't care what it is. The work is there now. If that's something that interests you, go get the experience. And when you've learned all you can about framing, find someone that can teach you about, you know, sheetrock. And when you've learned all you can about that, see what you can do about learning doing finish work like like kitchens and bathrooms and stuff like that, and get as much knowledge as you can because this is incredibly valuable, right? I'm these guys that are out there helping me out with this greenhouse. These guys are like pros, and watching these guys, you know, put together a frame of a wall is just amazing how quick they move. Well, if I had the the level of skill they did, I'd have buildings all over this freaking place. I build as much as I can afford materials for, right? So you look at building your own house, expanding your own house, remodeling your own house, and flipping it. I mean, you have to live somewhere, so there's always the opportunity to buy a really crappy house, fix it up, and flip it. It's more difficult for a lot of people because they want to do it with some other house. If if it's livable, and you can live in there for a year while you do it and then flip it and upgrade... It's also personal real estate. You can make over a half a million dollars as a couple or $250,000 as an individual on selling real estate like that before you pay a dime of income tax on it. So that's an opportunity that's there. Where do I think the real opportunity for people in construction is? I think you learn construction. You learn basic electrical. You learn basic plumbing. You learn everything. And then I think one of the greatest opportunities or the most resilient opportunities is kind of the handyman world. If you can get a hundred people in your neighborhood that when they need something, they call you, you will probably have more work than you can handle. And I'm talking that. So that's your core. That's your customer core. And then there's always going to, you know, if you build a good reputation and things like that, you market yourself through social media and stuff like that. And how easy is it to simply say, hey, when I build this, is it okay if I put put pictures on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that and to do that? And then, like, have your own YouTube channel as a handyman and just use your iPhone. Don't go for high production value, kind of like we were talking about with Justin yesterday, right? Pick your iPhone up. I'm just installing this right now, and we're working on this, and when we get done with this, we're going to do that, this, and this. I'll check back up when it's done and just build a YouTube channel like that. And put a little website together, and when people come to your your site to check out your business, this guy does everything, and he puts it online. He must be good. He wouldn't put his stuff online if he sucked. And meet your commitments, and don't take more work than you can handle. That's that's an angle. Um, you know, I am leery of betting the farm on retail or residential long term. But unless something goes drastically bad, this is probably a five or ten year run again in new construction because people need places to live. And they, they literally cannot keep up with that demand right now because they're so far behind on it. But there's so many things that could derail it. And so I don't even know if I want to bet the farm for five to ten years, but I saw something like, that's like, that's like, like the outer limit, I think, of how long this could last. Five to ten. Right? Because what could go wrong? Well, um, you know, our, our next president could destroy our economy. It's pretty close to being done anyway. We have all of this stuff with automation that's going to impact the employment sector. So just because people need houses don't, doesn't mean they have money to buy houses. Think about 2008, 2009, 2010 during the crash. Um, It wasn't like people went, I don't need a house anymore. I'm going to go live in a tree and and be a Keebler freaking elf. They went, I don't have money to pay for the house anymore. So they bailed out and whatever they could scrape together, they rented whatever they could afford. So anything that disrupts the economy disrupts the housing market. But you know what? The handyman types did well through the bust. Because people that were okay were like, "But I, I don't want to move, so I'm going to make the best of what I have." And then, as the as the market came back, the handyman's are the ones that can go in and fix up the house that the guy finally knows he can sell, and now he's willing to put the money. So they have this kind of fluidity, and that's you know, and that doesn't mean have to be a handyman. You can be a person that specializes in kitchen and bathroom remodels, right? uh or what have you. Uh and that may be good because you can still pick up handyman work if you're that. But you're more likely to get the person that does, I'll give you my kitchen remodel. Because like when we did ours, we had a guy that we called our handyman and I was like, you can't do a kitchen remodel. Sure I can. No you can't. You're one person. You you you're not gonna do granite and it just it, it didn't work out right. And um but if he had been a kitchen and bathroom guy it was also available as a handyman, and I had used him for all this other stuff. When the kitchen and bathroom came, I would have gave him. Unless he was stupid with his quote, I would have gave it to him. So that's kind of where I think we're at. I do think there's a lot of opportunity right now in housing, in various things around housing because of this. Texas, yes, we're. I'm, I'm more worried about Texas than a lot of the places in the country they used to worry about because we're getting stupid with our housing pricing. We're getting stupid with it. It's stupid for Texas, right? We're still below, you know, Connecticut or, you know, nice parts of like, you know, Florida near Fort Lauderdale or whatever, um, California, but we're getting what I consider to be preposterous when my father-in-law's house, which is really a two bedroom with a little home office in it on a zero lot line sold for a hundred and 5 110 somewhere in there for cash, you couldn't have made me take that house for $70,000. I wouldn't have paid $70,000 for that house. Um, when I compare that to what my house is like, and I paid just three years earlier $205 for my house, and those of you guys who have been here know that like, people that come down here from the northeast and I'll go, you, you paid what for this? They get mad, right? Like, I wonder what I could get for this house now. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon, but it's... It's scary to see that much inflated value. It really is. It's great if you bought before it happened because you have a a much more cushioned exit strategy now. But I'd, I'd be careful overall with long term. But this is really a prime time for the fix up and flip. It's a good time for the fix-up in rent market. It, it, it's a good time to gain a, a trade. All of those things. And, I, and thank you for this question because synchronistically, like I said, when I heard that little blurb on the uh, on the radio, I'm like, I got to talk about this after a how. And then today, boom, there's a question. By the way, there's a link to an article on Fortune.com about that, that shortage. If you want to verify it, let's take another one.
4: Hey Jack, this is Roger from Northeast Tennessee, where the world's greatest produce is grown. You and Dorothy should be living here. Uh, my question is regarding practical calibers and guns to have. I've been reloading for many years uh, forty five is extremely easy to reload uh, can be used for anything from home defense to uh, deer at close range. Thirty out six will take anything that that uh, I may encounter. And 12 gauge can take anything from rabbits to deer itself. So, my question is, those are easy to, relatively easy to reload. I've reloaded 223. It's small, not too easy to load. Got a lot of money invested in mini 14s and AR 15s. So what are the odds that I'm ever going to be involved in a close quarter cop? I know they have resale value, but what good would that be if money's not worth anything? So, anyway, just a comment. What do you think about those calibers? Uh, also, it's awful easy to make, uh, old ammo from lead. Cast your own bullets for 45, cast your own slugs for 12 gauge, and, and even make your own buckshot. Not that hard. So, make things relatively inexpensive, and, uh, Easy to shoot, fun to shoot. Just thought I'd pass that on to you. Thank you, buddy.
1: Yeah, you know, um, there is something to be said for simplicity. I I did a show way back in the early days of TSP, like somewhere in the first 100 episodes, called The Basic 4-Gun Battery. And I was like, you know, what you need is a shotgun, preferably 12 gauge, because it's the most available ammo. But I, I really love 20s, by the way. I just do. And everything you can say about the 12 is true about the 20, except it lays less and does a little less. But it's still very, very practical. So pick your shotgun, uh, a good center-file rifle, and you, you, you can't beat the 3006. You, you just can't. For, for all around, durability, all-around versatility, and for longevity. My God, this is a round that basically was born in 1903 and is still one of the most popular big-game rounds in America today. And you can take your Magnemitis and cram it. I, I, I would hunt anything... I, I, until I went to the point, if I, w- if I decided to go to Alaska and hunt brown bear, and I don't think I ever will because cost, and I don't really know that I want to kill that animal, honestly. Um, I don't have a problem with somebody who does, but I don't know that I want to be the person that does that. I don't feel the need to do that. But if I was going to, I would probably go like 338 wind mag up because it can eat me, and I want more knockdown power. But elk, moose, no problem, 30-06. So much of it's been done arguing it is ridiculous. Um, when it comes to handguns, I'm a huge fan of the .45. It is very easy to reload. It is easy to cast bullets for, um, and you know, for small game, if you really, you know, want to go something other than shotgun, .22 long rifle, right? And and and, and a handgun, you know, .45 or nine millimeter, either one. You don't need the 300 Winchester Super Short Magnum or the, you know. 7.5 Foofy Flu or whatever the hell. people. Are. I believe all of those cartridges are valid. They serve needs. They serve wants. Um, and some of them I really think are cool. I love the 300 Blackout. Do I need one? No. 223. Um, yeah, they can be a little bit of a pain to reload, but not that much. I've reloaded a lot of 223. I think the 223 is the finest varmint round that exist without being ridiculous. Like the 22-250 or the, the 220 Swift, man, they're pretty amazing. But they're, you know, you're scorching 4,000 feet per second. You don't really need that to shoot a groundhog even at 300 yards or a prairie dog at 300 yards. They're cool. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying, you know, the, the 223, it has all of that flexibility in it. So is it practical? I don't know. It depends on what you're going to do with it. If your, your purpose for the 223 is close quarters combat and you're not on a SWAT team or in the military, it's probably not practical for that. And you know me. I don't put anybody down that engages in that kind of training. I've engaged in some of that training myself. I think it's useful. I think it gets your head in the right direction. And I think if you ever need it, well, it's great that it's there. But honestly, if you break in my house, you're probably going to get the business end of a 45 uh, or a 40 Smith & Wesson in, in your, your, your noggin. Um, or, you know, you might get hit with a shotgun. I mean, that's that's reality. That makes sense. I think for home defense, handguns are immensely um practical because y- you've got two situations. Something's going on at the door, right, and you're not sure yet. So it's concealable. So you can deal with the threat and you don't alarm somebody that's just lost or knocked on your door because they were drunk or whatever. But, yeah, you're prepared. So that's one. The other thing is it's it's an invasion, and there's somebody in the house, and you're worried about being killed. And you, when you have a handgun in that type of an environment, and you can keep it close to your body, you're less likely to have it grabbed off of you and things like that. Right now, if the super ninja master or somebody's in your house and is going to disarm you, like the, the guys you see on YouTube or whatever, well, you, you're probably dead before you know they're there anyway. So we're talking about re, you know regular. Types of people that break into houses, scumbags. And if you have a rifle, you come around a wall, what have you, it is something that's a little easier to get hold of. It, it really is. So it's got that advantage as well. And it's still concealable, right? Because you do need to be sure that it, just because somebody's in your house doesn't mean you should shoot them. Maybe it's your son who came home early from the Army to surprise you. I know you're saying, Jack, I don't have a son that would come home. Okay, fine, but you get my point. There are situations where somebody could be in the house that's not needing to get a dirt nap. So concealability allows you more opportunity to identify, is this threat really something that requires lethal force or not? So, yeah, I mean, centerfire rifle, good quality handgun. Good shotgun and something small bore and you're, what else do you need? Now, you're talking to a guy that owns a lot of guns and keeps trying to convince myself not to buy more, but that's not because of practicality, that's because of desire. So I agree with you. Well, let's take another one.
5: Hey Jack, Scott from PA here. Question to follow up on the M1A Scout question from episode 1854. Looking at the unfortunate possibility of another Clinton presidency and therefore more infringements upon and including up to another assault weapons ban, is it a good idea to acquire now what may not be available later, such as the M1A Scout or Standard Capacity Magazines? Not that infringement couldn't or wouldn't happen under Trump, but there you go. Details. I've been listening to you for years now, in part because of the last presidential election, And have been building up my life and inventory of supplies in case times get tough or even if they don't. This includes ammo and arms. Several sources have suggested getting ahead of the curve on this. But what do you think? Is it worth diverting funds from stuff I know I can buy in a year, like an IBC tote to replace my water barrel for my catchment system? Thank you, Jack. As a side note, I did take your advice on the chicken tractor mini orchard garden combination, and my family couldn't be happier. It was pulled in, uh, it has pulled in my friends and my neighbors, some to help, and others just been inspired. We are looking forward to next year's harvest and eggs and trading our goods and services among the little group of people we have built. And it's all thanks to your insight. I, I really can't thank you enough, Jack. Really. Thank you.
1: Oh, Let me put it to you this way. Um, I'm not going to run out and buy a whole bunch of new guns. Why? I have plenty of them. I'm not going to run out and buy a bunch of 30 round magazines. Why not? I have a bunch of them. If I didn't, uh, I may, if I didn't own an AR, I would, I would buy an AR before the election. I'm telling you right now, because even if nothing happens, the, you're going to have a repeat of Obama's election. The hysteria is going to happen. Clinton gun ban! You'll, you'll, you'll go. I'm, I'm going to tell you what happened. In 2008, I went to a gun show. Here in Texas, um, and a guy had a Barrett 50 cal sitting on a table, and he had a sign on it that said, Better buy it before Obama comes and takes it. And this was like in December before Obama took over. And the place was a madhouse. I mean, all guns were selling like ridiculously fast and very elevated in price. So, I think, let's say let's say Hillary Clinton gets elected, let's say we're spared uh, eight years of her, we get four, and let's say she's not capable of getting anything done with gun legislation. I think you're still going to see a spike in prices, at least initially. And then all it takes is one mass shooting or something like that, and then we have to do something, and maybe something does get done. And even if it's minor what gets done, the hysteria around the buying. So right now... It's actually pretty peaceful in the gun market, and except for the one redneck here that's on the radio. That's not what we need. Uh, I heard him the other day on the radio when I heard the the thing about the building. He's like. Well, you know, I finally got some of them AR-15, and I swear to God, this is what he sounds like. I finally got me some of them AR-15s back in stock, and I, with the gun grabbers out there and everything, I don't know when I'm gonna be able to get some more of them, but you need to come on down here now, and uh, I got ARs for only $399. I don't know what the hell he's selling for $399, by the way. You get free concealed carry classes when you buy a gun here. Well, you don't need, whatever, like, so, they're, they're doing it now. In they're advertising and marketing the gun dealers, but the market's not really revved up about it right now. People are kind of, you know, doing their thing, doing their normal stuff, uh, what have you, but if you see Hillary Clinton elected, yeah, it's going to explode, right? People's. Brains will be coming out of their nose or whatever. And the the concept that this is just more Obama will just not make any sense. Like, well, if that was going to happen, Barack Obama would have already done it. We're sitting with a president who, if given the opportunity, will ban as much firearm activity as he can. And if we get Hillary Clinton, we're sitting with another person who will do the same. These are people that, if they could do it with a stroke of the pen, would. There's limits to what our president can do at least for now, and that's a good thing. The big danger, and this is where the shit will hit the fan pricing-wise. If the Democrats take the House or the Senate, okay? And Hillary Clinton wins, you will see guns selling like they were selling in 2008 plus after Sandy Hook put together. That that's what will happen. Even if the Republicans keep one side of the Congress, it will it will ensue hysteria in buying. So I'm actually saying right now, if you have plans on buying things that would be affected by an assault weapons ban or affected by gun hysteria in the next two years, you might want to move your purchasing up regardless of whether or not a ban happens. Now, if a ban happens... What everybody thinks is, well, last time they did an assault weapons ban, all the pre-banned stuff was grandfathered. Don't you bet that that's going to be the case again? Now, it's probably easier for them to sell it that way, and it's more than likely it would be. But don't think that like you might not get screwed holding a bunch of like magazines that you have to turn in. It happened in Connecticut, didn't it? You see what I'm saying? So don't think that just because you get the stuff now, it won't be affected by the ban. Do I think we're likely to see an assault weapons ban in the next four years? I don't. I don't because I don't think the, the Senate and the House will both lose Republican majorities. And I think the only way to get that done right now is to you would have to have what Barack Obama had at the beginning, both Houses and the presidency. And, and I, I just don't see that happening. By the way, if things continue the way they are now, President Donald Trump, and I'm not saying that's good for other reasons, but at least from the gun side, I think I agree with the caller, it is less likely to see assault weapons bans under Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump is looking good for the win right now, in spite of what people are saying about it's unsurmountable with the states and all. If he can compose himself the way he did last night in that commander-in-chief forum thing, during the debates, I think Hillary Clinton will look very bad after three of those very very bad in comparison to the 20% mushy middle that makes the um the decision in the end i am not calling this presidential race yet i know sometimes you say i have a crystal ball and whatever i i think it's too it's too close right here but i think those that have resigned themselves to hillary clinton because donald trump's 10 points behind in the pulse you, you you're not getting it um if Donald Trump loses the presidency, Donald Trump wants to lose the presidency. All he has to do is stop saying stupid shit, stick to the facts, stick to the issues, and continue to attack current policy. He'll win. Again, those of you who listen a long time know that's not an endorsement. I'm analyzing this like two football teams playing that I don't give a shit about. In fact, let's put it two baseball teams playing. Because at least I give a shit about football. I don't give a damn about baseball. I don't give a I – I just found out yesterday the Texas Rangers are in first place because something came up and I looked and I'm like, wow, they're, they're, they're likely to possibly be able to go to the World Series. I live in Texas and I didn't know my own team. It was like way out in first – so I don't care about baseball at all. So I almost don't care about presidential politics at all. So th- when I whenever you hear me say something that seems to to favor a politician, it's it's electability, it's not personal-like. Who would I like to see president of the United States? Um, how about no one? Seriously, I can't think of anybody that potentially could become president right now that I would want to see president. I don't trust a single, single one of them. However, I, int- I listened to a show recently, uh, somebody recommended to me, it's a British show about f- philosophy, and there's a guy on there talking about the cult. Uh, how do you get out of a cult when you don't know you're in a cult? And the cult is basically like society, right? Um, and he was talking about how, you know, looking from across the pond over here at the the, the 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 incredible, you know, from bad to worse, Clinton versus Trump. And he actually said, I think Trump would be worse for the empire of the United States long term. Even if it didn't happen during his presidency, like, it would weaken the U.S.'s hold on the rest of the world. And his his premise was we should probably elect people if we're going to – and this guy's an anarchist like me, so he's probably not going to vote, right? But if we're going to vote, we should probably vote for the people that would do the most damage to the system so that it can be weakened, so that it can be transformed rather than the people that would be effective at, at moving it forward and making it actually worse for everybody but stronger, right? I don't know if I agree with that, but it was an interesting take. Uh, good to hear other people's take on this country because we're pretty myopic when it comes to our own, on all things. Like, you you tend not to see, you know, the, the log in your own eye rather than the speck in your neighbor's to- type of thing. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one.
6: Hey, Jack. It's Rick in West Virginia again. First things first, real quick, thanks for the uh, good answer on the uh, digital currency under the tax fairness. Actually, I Actually, didn't know all that answer, so I learned something. Second off, I'm sure everybody can remember where they were when September 11 happened. A lot of people in the audience are definitely old enough to remember that. i not think That was basically, this generation's JFK. So here's an interesting fact about that. My daughter, who is in 10th grade this year, showed me this picture. It's been all over Facebook, but some people may not be on Facebook. And here's the fact. This is the very first year that they will be teaching the attacks on 9-11 to ninth graders in high school as a historical event that happened before they were born. You know, you talk all the time about time moves, times move, times moves. That's an absolute fact. I can remember all the stuff I've done since then. I can remember exactly where I was standing when that happened. And to think that high school kids were born after that, it makes you really think about time and how it moves on. Anyway, just wanted to throw that out there in case people didn't see that all over Facebook. Have a good day thanks I'll be listening
1: yeah this is uh this is pretty amazing to me when I think about it and I think about the fact that my son um in two thousand one my son was twelve my son is a twenty seven year old grown man with a daughter and a son and my son was twelve on nine eleven And I'm not going to get into any of the what really happened stuff today. Just for the record, for those that don't know, I do not believe the complete conspiracy theory that Larry Silverstein blew up the the Building 7. And I also don't believe the official story. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle that there's definitely things that we have not been told about the whole thing. But I don't think that matters for the point that's being made here. It's regardless of what you think happened, it's etched into the minds of those, especially those of us who were adults at the time that it occurred. I remember very clearly where I was. Um, I had just landed in Pittsburgh International Airport. I went out to meet a sales rep that I was managing. He picked me up in his car. We turned on the radio. We were listening to Howard, Howard Stern show. And um, we heard that a, a plane had hit um, one of the World Trade Centers. Uh, towers in New York, and we didn't hear much about it at first. It was just kind of like, oh, they and they, they you know, they're kind of even joking a little about. It. And we were joking about because we figured, well, it, it, it can't be an airliner. That was never what we thought. We were like, no, it's, it, it, it's like it's some cess, some kind of Cessna or something got drunk and did it or something, you know. And we were driving a little bit more, and we heard that a second plane had hit. And by then they had started to say, you know, it was, you know, major aircraft. You know, we heard the Pentagon. And my, uh, my rep, who, by the way, my son's name is Matt. My rep's name was Matt. Matt Mundorf, he turns to me and he says, you know what this means? I said, yes, it means we're at war. That's what it means. I remember that very, very clearly. And I remember calling my wife when I finally could get through because the phones were just blowing up and she had my flight number and all. So I figured she knew I was safe and I was, you know, nowhere near where this was going on. I flew from Philadelphia to, uh, to Pittsburgh that day. And, uh, I finally got through to her. She, and my wife's a very emotional, very em- emp- 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 empathic person. I'm sorry, empathic person. And, uh, she was crying and she was pretty upset about it. And, uh, she, uh, she was, she was very upset. We had her get a hold of the school and, uh, because, you know, said, my, my husband travels and he's flying in a plane today. And if the kids know anything about this, he's going to be freaked out. Let him know that, uh, his, his dad's okay. And they were actually rude to her. And so they had no intention of telling the police, uh, the, uh, the children about it. And, uh, which was weird for me because I remember, like, when the space shuttle, uh, exploded, uh, the, the first time, uh, that that happened they they brought TVs into the classroom so that we could see it when things that big happened they they brought it into the classroom so i that 's why I was concerned about him but I also remember that that night when I was talking to him, he asked me, "Can a war come here and i've always been a believer that a child is ready to hear the answer to the question they asked and I said in some ways it just did, but I think you and I and your mom will be fine. And I can remember all of those things far better than things that happened, not all things, but far better than some things that happened five years ago, even though we're looking at what fifteen years now, fifteen years it is it is like like the caller said, it is our JFK, right? Because you know I know the whole story of the JFK assassination and all, but I didn't experience it. I didn't experience it. I remember President Reagan being shot, but he didn't die. Uh, I remember seeing it on TV. I remember, uh, it was it James Brady or Baker on the ground with his head bleeding and, uh, Brady, cause he's the Brady Bill and all that stuff, right? Brady on the ground. I remember the guy with the, 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 the Uzi, the Secret Service guy with the Uzi, you know, when, when they were clearing the place. Um, I remember all of that, but I don't remember it like I remember 9-11 for two different reasons. One, because it was the president and he didn't die. And, and two, I was, you know, a young child. It didn't, it didn't hit me the way it does as an adult. So I think we have three distinctive groups in existence right now. We have children that weren't even born or were so young, they have no remember, you know, no memory of it. Okay. Uh you know if you were say four or under there's definitely no real record of this and you were probably sheltered from it at 5 or 6 anyway. Uh and then we have you know the, so you got that and the unborn and uh, then they have they have knowledge but no remembrance. Then we have people like my son who remembered it, who saw it all happen, who have it etched into them but not the way an adult does. And then we have people that were either, you know, teenage, older teenagers and young adults into adulthood and to any age above that who it's completely etched into our memory and we'll never forget it. And I wonder as. Future generations come up; these ninth graders who are learning this is history. Think about it: you, your children, are now being taught history that happened before they were born that you remember. That's that's kind of a crossing of the delta for uh, as, us as we age. What their children will think about all of the the ridiculous regulations and laws that have been imposed, and all the spying on the American people without a memory of, of, of the the excuse. without It's just a story of what happened. It's not really living through it. And, and not understand why their parents and their grandparents were willing to sell out their freedoms because they didn't experience the emotion that was going on. Or will they not even know? Because like the show I did this week, are we the last generation to even know the vestiges, the last remaining pieces of true freedom? I don't really know. I don't really know. I know that a lot of effort has been made to compare it to Pearl Harbor, but I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way at all, other than I don't think that the official historical record of Pearl Harbor is completely accurate either. Um, I think there's plenty of evidence that it was a let it happen type thing with the intention of drawing the United States into war. Which I think in some instances is, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my feeling on this, what 9-11 more was than a conspiracy theory and a controlled demolition and all this stuff. I think that, I think that we, we had foreknowledge and we did not prevent it. And, um, that makes a lot of the things that don't seem to make sense, make sense without getting into things that I think don't really make sense, but you can make a documentary to show that they do. Um, and I'm not saying there wasn't anything in those buildings. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, man, think about it, guys. Forget all of the conspiracy talk, whether you're a believer in the conspiracies, whether you're a believer in the official story, or like me, you're someone that sits in the middle of it, no matter what, it's etching into your brain. And we have ninth graders being taught it that weren't alive when it happened. We're getting older. Make the most of your dash. That's the point of that. Let's go ahead and take another one.
7: Hey, Jack, this is Rick in Northern California again, and I thought I'd give you a quick little tip that you may or may not like, but uh, what it is is simply an app that you can add to your website, and it's called Speak Pipe one word. And essentially what it is is a voicemail app that people can click on, record a voicemail, and then, of course, you get notified via email and MP3 to listen to that. Um, I tried it out. Actually, I saw it on Joshua Sheets from Radical Personal Finance, um, who you've been on his show and I think he, I'm not sure if he's been on yours or not, but anyway, um, seems to work pretty good. And, uh, just a little, um, tip and suggestion. If you want to add a voicemail button, that one seems to be pretty cool. Speak pipe. All right. Take care. Thanks for all you do.
1: Okay. So due to the column width on the site, I'm not completely in love in the way that it's displaying on the site. Um, so I might move it around, but I already went and did it. Like I got this call and like, you know, that's that's pretty simple to do. So if you go to the survivalpodcast.com right now, remember there's a short link so you can type in less letters, Tspc.co. Um you'll you'll end up there and you'll see uh, in the center column, uh, just down a little bit below all of the connect with us stuff and under Listen with the rad- random Random so send a voice message to the TSP think line. Is your microphone ready? And a little button says Start Recording. You click that, uh, it'll start recording. You can leave a message, and it'll come to me. So if you want to send in audio for shows like this, you can use it that way from now on. Uh, I may actually move it to the other column because it's wider, and it's not displaying right because it's being forced into a more narrow thing. But I, I do know that on some mobile devices, that whole column gets pushed down low. So... Uh, I'll see what I can do about maybe spiffing that up a bit for you, maybe dropping it right under the search box. But the reason I like this suggestion is because we do have quite a few international callers that can't make a phone call to the 800 number without paying international rates. So we get, we hear less from people in, let's say, the UK, uh, not so much Canada. Canada, people still seem to call in when they want to. Uh, but the UK, uh, Denmark, I know we have a lot of people in like Denmark. We have a lot of people in like New Zealand, Australia. Um, Those folks tend not to call in as much. People that are serving overseas, um, you know, as long as you have internet connection now, you can use this recording line to call in questions and make points uh, for inclusion on the show like this. So um, it's not free. Uh, uh, The one, the package, it does up to 150 messages a month, which is probably plenty. It's like eight bucks a month. I don't mind paying for it. But unless it's going to get used, it doesn't make sense. So if it gets used twice a month, um, you know, there's other ways you can send me a voicemail without calling. Um, the the person last week that called in about the uh, problem with her in-laws didn't call in. They just did an audio recording and sent it to me as an attachment. So you can do that. But this is a cool thing. It's on the site. It's easy. It works. I tested it already. So, uh as long as it doesn't get abused or anything, we'll keep it and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll use it for, uh, for good. And uh, thanks for the tip. And again, uh, it is called uh, Pipe and you'll see it's a green and gray button. I haven't upgraded to the paid version yet. They have a 30-day trial, so I can change the display a little bit when I give them some money. Uh, but I'll leave it roll through the weekend, and if I get a few messages on it, we'll, we'll keep it around and we'll, we'll uh, spiff it up a bit. So thanks for that call. Let's take another one. Hi,
7: Jack. This is Rick in Northern California, and I have a question about the bucket fodder system. The details are I've been using the system for several months. I use wheat berries. I have seven buckets, and I soak the berries for 24 hours um, and then add them you know, to the system in the morning and uh, give them a rinse again in the evening. Problem being that although I have one to two inches of sprouts, I have zero root mass, so I'm not getting that nice tight root mat Um, all the berries are still loose as well you know with the sprouts on them Um, anything you can do to help me improve that would be greatly appreciated and in addition to that I am getting some fairly strong smells um, kind of a a strong somewhat foul odor however um, if I do a little bit more diligence with rinsing frequency it seems to help Thanks so much, and look forward to hearing any tips or strategies you have to get that nice root mat like I see on your YouTube video. Appreciate you. Take care. Bye.
1: Let's start out with the strong smells. You're getting fermentation, you're getting mold. Uh, this is due to microorganisms. This happens with sunflower seeds, this happens with barley, this happens with wheat, this happens with any grain that stays wet for too long. Um, and if it's fermentation, it's not that big a deal. It actually can be beneficial, but if it's mold, it can be a problem. If it starts to really smell bad, it's probably not the best thing either. Um, and so if you want to cut down on this, there's a couple different methods you can use. One is in your soaking bucket, buy a big bulk bag of, of uh, chamomile. And, you know, get a good sized pinch of chamomile and basically use a chamomile cold tea as your soaking bucket. So, throw your chamomile in the bottom, throw your seeds on top, and then fill it with water and the seeds will hold the chamomile under a little bit better. It won't float all on the top. You'll get a chamomile infusion. And when I say a big pinch, I mean, you know, I don't, not, not a handful, but about a half a handful. Right? So, a pound bag of chamomile goes a long way this way. It can help and it does help reduce mold. The other thing, if that's not enough, is you can use some hydrogen peroxide about a tablespoon or two in your soaking bucket. If that doesn't work, you can go to bleach, about a capful of bleach to a five-gallon bucket. Bleach. Okay, listen. If you're growing it for even three days, it sits in a soaking bucket. It gets rinsed day one, rinsed day two, rinsed, uh, and then fed day three, and you can rinse it one more time. There's There's no chlorine left you know it's it's only going to stave off the mold growth for a certain amount of time and it'll kill the mold that's in there, but new mold will get in if you grow it four five six days you 'll start to see a little bit of mold pick up in the warmer months and The other thing's going on right now is a warmer time of year, and you're more likely to get mold. The other thing is. You want to make sure that your buckets so this is from an, an old design and I've kind of upped it and i 'll talk about what I'm doing now, but basically you take a five gallon bucket and you use one as a soaking bucket and then you you drill holes and however other many buckets you want based on how many days you want to grow. Sprouts, And I called this fodder in the beginning. It was really a mistake. I did get some pretty good growth out of barley that was more fodder-like, roots all matted together, high green, you know, two, three inches of green, grass-like structure standing up and, and feeding it to them. But really, if you want to do fodder, you do a traditional fodder system. You want to do it cheap with buckets, you just do sprouts. And once it's sprouted like you would eat it as like a, a sprout, it's it's ready for the birds. And it still increases the mass a lot. It's definitely more nutritious for them. So you want to make sure your holes in your bucket are as big as they can be without your your whatever you're sprouting falling through the holes. You want really good drainage. Okay. Then the other thing is you don't really want to fill like your your grow bucket like halfway. Like I use. The the big scoops you get at Tractor Supply that have like a handle and, you, you, you know, I don't know how much they hold, maybe four cups, uh, but the big plastic scoops they have at Tractor Supply for feed scoops. I use two of those and a half of one in my soaking bucket. When you dump it into a five-gallon bucket, it only comes up about four inches. If you go too deep, you're creating a lot of like this moisture trap and you don't get them to kind of come up as much. So that's another thing that you can do with your bucket sprouting systems for your livestock to uh, to feed better sprouts. The other thing is when you dump it into your bucket with holes, when you do it that first day, give it a really good shake. Get it really to drain out really well and then flush it with fresh water. Okay? Um, and I'll talk about how I do that here in a second. The next thing is you can probably go to doing – your water one time a day instead of twice a day so it dries out a little bit more you're going to have a little less mold activity uh, what have you um assuming that you're you're not getting too dry and you kind of can check on that for yourself that's the other thing you don't want to go too little if you only use let's say like when you dump your wet grain into your so your your growing buckets it's only like an inch it's going to dry out really really fast so I tried the big concrete trays, and the problem with those is it was too thin of a layer for the amount I was growing. And even if you had a thick layer, the whole top layer, this huge top layer, dries out, you lose the first couple seeds, the first little bit, of like, you know, quarter inch. They dry out really, really quick. In a bucket, you reduce that surface area, and therefore you have slower evaporation on your surface. So you get a much better result that way. I have gone away from barley, um, wheat I have no experience with. So I got okay results with barley. It was more expensive. It was harder to source. People grow it because it will grow in cold weather. And a lot of people feed their fodder mostly in cold weather when they don't have good forage. I have gone to black oil sunflower seeds. I'm talking about bird seed. I go to tractor supply, buy a 40-pound bag for 16 bucks, And it sprouts really fast. So this reduces the mold issue. The quicker it sprouts, the less time there is for mold to come on. Okay, so I'm in the summer when you're at 90 degree temperatures, I'm on a two two grow buckets, one soak, one bucket, you know, and then two buckets. And by the third day, you're feeding it. It doesn't get into like a really thick, heavy mat. It is loose, but that's great because now I can spread it out to make the birds work a little bit more for it and make sure everybody gets some. What I believe with the bucket sprouting system, and again, I should have called it a fodder system in the beginning. Once you get a good sprout, feed it. Keep your days minimal if you can get a good sprout in one day, feed it. What I get in one day is the little so I get soaked into the first day bucket by the second day when it 's when that first day bucket's becoming a second day bucket it 's got a little tiny rootlet sticking out of it, just a little bitty one that 's okay. You could feed it to them. The big conversion's been done inside the starch and the oil and all so it's it 's nutritious, but one more day, I get a long thin. Root, and I have like a bunch of long, thin roots when I feed it. That's where I feed it. Going another day, it would get a little bit bigger, but you start to see the roots dampen off and die off. Well, then you're done. Go ahead and feed it. Now, how I'm doing it now. I have a metal rack outside. I have a cheap like $4 plastic sprinkler, the ones that are a circle like a donut shape, tie wrapped above to the top of it, and have it pointed down, and I have it hooked to a faucet. So I put my buckets in there, and I turn it on, and I rinse it through. That's it. And I'll do a quick video on it, kind of what we're doing with it now for you guys this weekend so you can see it. But those are the tips I would give you guys to do your sprouting and to to have less problems with, you know, matting up, caking up, getting moldy, smelling bad, and don't be afraid of the bleach. Try the other things first. Use it as like your last resort. But a cap full of bleach in there, it, it's gotten this August, it's gotten so muggy here, I'm doing it. Again, um, it's about the same amount of bleach you would use to to, to treat five gallons of water if you're going to drink it and you weren't sure about how safe it was. It's not super healthy, but, you know, you're, you're talking three days later, that chlor, chlorine, especially the way I'm running water through, it, you'll see when I do the video for you, has cast. As soon as I don't think it's necessary, I'll go back to just chamomile or hydrogen peroxide. Um, hydrogen peroxide is a great tool, but the stuff you get in the store is pretty weak. If you want to try peroxide, get the concentrated stuff and, uh, use, you know, a, a teaspoon of that. That's, that's going to be, and be careful with it when it's more concentrated, getting on your skin and stuff like that. All right. Anyway, let's go ahead. I think I have uh, one more question and we're done for the day.
8: Hey Jack, this is Jesse out of southeast Iowa. Just came across your podcast recently and I'm loving it, dude. I, it's amazing stuff that you have on there and all the, the counsel you have coming on just amazing amount of information. Really appreciate it. Um I had a question about mulberry uh a market for mulberries. I live in Iowa, mulberries are all over the place and I understand there's a a need for mulberries like for like uh, homesteaders that are, you know wanna use mulberry trees to feed the chickens with for so the mulberry berry and um, I discovered that there's actually a product of dried mulberries to sell for eat, you know. And just wondering, um, if, you, if you think it's probable a fella could uh, sell dry mulberries to a local farmer's market, because I have literally 10 of these trees in my, around the edge of my yard, And um, or am I better off trying to learn to um, develop cuttings from the mulberry tree and sell them to other people who are wanting to propagate like Pakistani mulberries and the other mulberry trees such as that nature um, it's just a cool resource that's all around me and uh, a lot of people think it's a weed tree but if there's a, an actual market that I can have just a steady little income stream off of that I would love to hear some ideas from you or anybody else you think um, that can answer that question and just uh, yeah just kind of use a use for that tree uh, thanks a lot for all you do Jack really appreciate it and uh, have a good day. have a good night bye
1: kind of feel like the answer to the question is should I do this or that is yes, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, should you figure out a market for the fruit or propagate the plants and find a market for that? Yes. You should do both and see which one works better. Um, here's the, the deal, though. So I don't know how well you do selling mulberries locally in a place that has so many mulberries, but a dried mulberry is very shippable. So it would be a mulberry juice or any other mulberry value added product, um, if you were to create a really cool mulberry syrup that could be mixed with, say, sparkling water that might be a great product to can and sell, uh, that makes a good drink and I believe there's in, in, in Morocco, I think it's a very popular Morocco or somewhere in the, the Middle East, it's a very, very popular drink, uh, basically a mulberry soda made from a concentrated mulberry syrup, um, drying them I don't know why you couldn't dry a black or a red mulberry. And I'm assuming since you've got them growing native there, they're probably red mulberries. Uh, most of the places where people call them trash trees and they, they just grow native. They're, they're the Morse Ruba, I believe, but I could be wrong. Uh, but I've never seen d- dried black or red mulberry. All of the dried mulberries that I see like that you can buy, and I checked again today, and I couldn't find anything but, are the white mulberries, which are delicious, by the way. They taste like the best raisin you ever ate, and I don't like raisins. So that's, that's like you haven't had one, so the only thing I can compare it to is kind of like sort of like the golden raisins, I guess, but they're really good. I bought a bag of them. I was going to make mead by infusing them, in and I ate all the mulberries, so uh, I haven't yet tried to make mead out of dried mulberries. I'm going to try my hand at drying mulberries because next year I'm going to have mulberries coming out of my butt, literally here with all of the trees that will be producing. So again, I don't see any reason that they wouldn't be able to be dried. However, I haven't seen that product marketed. So I think there's an opportunity there. Propagation of mulberry is extremely easy from cuttings. So as long as you can find a place to sell them, you can, you can make as many as you want. Um, I've propagated dwarf mulberry here by cutting a, a you know, a nice softwood cutting off of it, sticking it in a flower pot full of moist potting soil and keeping it in the shade. And I've actually had really good results. Uh, that's Mora Alba Isai. I don't know how well, uh, Morse Ruba uh it propagates so i'm you know you'd have to kind of look into it but it's my understanding that mulberry is one of the easier uh trees to propagate that's why they grow so well on their own that they self propagate so you can uh look into that i don't know that you can make you know a full time income selling mulberries uh especially uh your garden variety wild mulberry But you might do well if you could find some bigger projects where people want to buy a thousand trees for a dollar a piece because it's a thousand dollar order, you know, plus whatever shipping is. So that might be possible. I do think that as a value added product, mulberry is underutilized in our country. I think it's a fine berry. I think it can do a lot of things and you don't. I mean, like, I when I go to the supermarket, I look for mulberry products. One day, and I found one maker that sells mulberry juice, black mulberry juice, um, and, and that was it in the whole you know supermarket with you know half a million freaking products, one mulberry product. Um, but it might sell better where people don't just have them growing everywhere, or I don't know, it might sell sell good there. But juice syrup, uh, jelly meads, I mean. Another opportunity would be, well, what if you can find a meadery that wants to do a mulberry mead and you provide them the berries? That could be maybe not a lot of money, but, you know, why wouldn't they just go pick them themselves if they're a local meadery? Because they don't have time for that. They're making mead marketing mead. And the mulberry meads I've made this year are freaking fantastic, and that's why I wanted to try the white mulberry. And I I bought some dried ones because you know, I couldn't get them fresh. And my white mulberry trees produced like five berries this year. So I wanted to see what that would be like. But the red... Actually, I'm not going to get into this, but there's white mulberry tree that produced blackberries. And that's Morris Alba. Um But uh it's a blackberry. And it is fantastic. Now... I tried making it with pure juice, and I didn't like it. But using about a pound of uh, fresh mulberry to the gallon of mead must is great. It's very – it's like a really mild Merlot wine. Is And it's not, but that's, again, it's like, what does frog legs taste like? They taste like chicken, not really, but sort of. But that's the only thing I can compare it to if you haven't tried it, right? It's the only corollary I can create. So I'd I'd look into those opportunities there. And, you know, you can always post in the buy and sell forum on the survival podcast forums about having things in test market really easily like that. And just see, uh, it's called the swap meet or trade something forum that we have aboard there. By the way, you guys are new to the forums or haven't used the forums yet. You should check them out. And one thing you should know is you should get in and, you know, try to help out and do some posts uh, you don't have to do anything really phenomenal or whatever, but some of the boards that are more pre- more likely to 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 get spammed, you don't see until you do like ten posts. So spammers don't generally come in and do ten valid posts and then go, oh look, here's a place to spam. They come in and look for spam right away. So the swap meet, trade, po- trading post, whatever they call it, um, is uh, one of those boards you will not see until you've done at least ten posts. And the forums, awesome guys. I don't talk about it enough on the air. It really is the, the the people that run that, the admins that run the forum are the the guys that help me with all of my technical needs to keep this show online. So if you're a forum user, there's a place there where you can kind of. A tip jar basically for the admins. Consider doing that uh, and use the banners to to uh, to buy stuff. Some of our sponsors on the show also sponsor the forum. That's different. It's not you know inclusive. So that's I basically given that to the admins. You guys run it. Whatever the forum makes, you can have. So uh so you know show the admins a little love because those guys do a great job there on the forum. That's our last question for the day. I'm actually going to talk about the uh, Amazon item of the day. Kind of blended in with a little closing segment here. Um, Toby Hemingway has become a really good friend and he's the author of a book called Gaia's garden. And that's our Amazon item of the day that we have a review for you up and you can buy that through our Amazon link if you want to today. Gaia's garden is to me the most approachable book about permaculture for the new person. If you said, I don't know anything about permaculture, but I like what I'm hearing. I want a book that tells me what to do and how to do it. That doesn't go over my head, but yet Helps me build a really complex, resilient system. I would say, Gaia's Garden. And you'd say, well, what else? It's a Gaia's Garden. Start there and then figure out where to go next. It's that good. Um, Toby's been doing this stuff for over 20 years. He really knows what he's doing. He's a smart guy. He's been on the air and the book's great. Well, he's doing a course through Perma Ethos called Creating Gaia's Garden. I think it's like a five part course. So it's five different sessions. I think they're around two hours a piece or something like that. And you're, you, you get to interact with him because it's live. You're going to be able to work on designs and have him look at them. And I mean, talking world class guy here. And those of you that are want to take permaculture like to the next level, uh, this course will count toward a permaculture diploma. So that's where you're going beyond a PDC. If you want to do that, uh, through one of the institutes that offer them, uh, for a certain number of credit hours, I don't remember how many, but it's a great, great course and you can find out more about that today in the show notes what this is going to do is focus on how to actually transform that small space that backyard that tenth to a quarter to a half of an acre which if that's what you have and most of you do that's great and if you have bigger then it's your zone one it's your zone two it's that it's the thing you should be doing first even on that big property so um Take a look at the link today. There's about a 15-minute free video introduction that discusses it and, and, and gives more information on it. And uh, this is really going to be a great class. I'm going to uh, get that video embedded on on the, the main website soon so you can watch it. Um, but This is going to be a fantastic interactive course. Also, if you want to know more about permaculture, homesteading, self-sufficiency, we've had things making mead, you name it. Uh PETV presentations. Every week we have a new live presentation. And if you miss the presentation, you can buy a copy for $2.99. Um, download it, keep it forever, that type of thing. We will have a subscription service at some point. We just don't yet. Again, you can find it at PE.tv, P-E-T-V, uh for perma, perma ethos television, right? And uh it's really Josiah Wallingford is doing a bang-up job on that. I'm so proud of the, the work that he's done to, to make this into something really outstanding. A lot of people have talked about this whole webinar thing and world-class permaculture education and different speakers every week and all. No one's done it the way Joe has. We, we, we um, took a long time to figure out how to do it this way, but, man, just take a look at it, PETV presentations, and, again, you can find the course for Toby in the uh, the show notes today. And remember, when you're doing your shopping on Amazon, even if you want nothing to do with Guy's Garden, but you like this show and you want to support my work, go to tspas.com, click the link there to go to Amazon, buy your stuff on Amazon, and support the show. The other way to support the show is to become a member of the support brigade. This is a great time to do that. A really great time to do that. We are running the 30-30-30-30 sale right now. And what that means is you can get MSB for $30 a year right now um, with the discount code, code SKULLCRUSHER. Skull crusher. That, sh- that sales only running for 30 hours. At 3 p.m. tomorrow, Friday, it's gone. It's done. It's not coming back. And remember, I don't care if your dog ate your discount code. It's over. You have 30 hours to sign up and get MSB for $30 a year. Uh, with discount called Skull Crusher. Now, here's the other side of it. All MSB members should care about this. Jason Davis has re- re- released a belt. He's called a Leadwood Leather Blunt Force Trauma Belt. It has an amazing buckle on it. It looks like a plain, ordinary buckle. It doesn't seem heavy when you're wearing it or anything, but if you watch what he does to an Oldsmobile with it in the video, it's pretty impressive. That's why I call it the Skull Crusher, because I think it would crush your skull if somebody whacked you in the head with it. And it's a belt. So you can take it on an airplane. You can take it into the stadium where they take away your weapons, etc. It's awesome. And you can get $30 off any of of the versions of that belt for the next 30 days, hence the other two 30s, with a discount code that's now in the MSB. It's not on the benefits page with all the other 60-odd discounts. It's on the home page in big, bold, red letters, and it's just for the belt. It's a different discount code. Jason does 20% off for everything all the time, but he's doing $30 off a belt right now, which is a huge discount, and it's a really great product. So get MSB for 30 bucks, and within the next 30 days, you can get a Skull Crusher belt for $30 off, 30 hours to get MSB. Take advantage of it while it's here. With that, um, let's go into our closing segment today, the song of the day. Um, this song is my Alabama. I've been on an Alabama kick a little bit lately, I know, but, uh, Alabama to me is the group that made people that didn't think they liked country go, I like country, you know, really I, I, that's kind of how they are. They were like the first real crossover that kind of made country sound like seventies rock right about the time that seventies rock was dying and we were ending up with the 80s and 80s rock, and ugh, ugh, ugh. There was some good music in the 80s, but most of it was, ugh. You guys know what I'm talking about. The bubblegum 80s music, my God. And many of us that liked the sounds of the 70s found country bands like Alabama, and we found Alabama first. So I like them. This is actually one of their later songs, though, and um, it's called Pass It On Down. And it's about taking care of the earth. It's about, hey, let's leave some green. you know let's not just we, we've got to save what we have, pass it on down to future generations. And the reason I like that is if there's a band that kind of caters to what we call the right wing the the typical Republican, especially in the, in the '80s and '90s when this band was big, it's Alabama. Country music generally is more of a, a right-wing thing. And I think the right-wing gets labeled by the left-wing wackos that want a carbon tax and you know basically to destroy the economy as being not caring about the environment, being just evil people that hate the earth or something. I think basic environmental common sense is something that's, that's very universal. And it's good to hear a song like this come from kind of that side of things. It's not alternative punk or something like that. And I just think it's a good-sounding song, and it's kind of upbeat. And, again, I've had some heavy subjects lately, so I'm going to finish you out this week with upbeat songs. I don't know what I'm going to pick out for tomorrow yet, but it'll be something upbeat. Hope you enjoy this song. Hope you enjoyed this show. Remember, again, you can always support us by doing your Amazon shopping at com. And with that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
0: Like the water from our sink, they say it's not safe to drink, you gotta go and buy it at the store. Now we're told there's a hole in the old song. look what's washing on the beach, and Lord I believe from the heavens to the sea, we're bringing Mother Nature to her knees. Let's leave some blue up above us Let's leave some green on the ground It's only ours to borrow Let's save some for tomorrow Leave it and pass it on down Well, that's a change taking place way on the mountain Acid rain is falling on the leaves And down in Brazil The fires are burning still How are we gonna breathe without them trees So let's leave some blue up above us Let's leave some green on the ground It's only ours to borrow Let's save some for tomorrow and pass it on down. Well, there's a place where I live called the Canyon, where Daddy taught me to swim. And that water, it's so pure. And I'm gonna make sure Daddy's grandkids can swim there like him. Now we all ought to feel just a little bit guilty when we look into the eyes of our kids. Cause brothers, it's a fact. If we take and don't put back, they'll have to pay for all we did. So let's leave some blue up above us. Let's leave some green on the ground. It's only as follows. Save some far tomorrow Leave it and pass it on down So let's leave some blue up above us Let's leave some green on the ground Well, it's only as to borrow Let's save some far tomorrow Leave it and pass it on down So let's leave some blue up above us Let's leave some green on the ground.
3: It's on the earth to borrow. Let's say some parts of my road. Leave it and pass it on down.
0: So let's leave some blue up above us. Let's leave some green all the ground. It's on the earth to borrow. Let's say some parts of my road. Pass it on down